This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. Composer Philip Glass has spoken the following words about the connection of music and mindfulness. He says, Each time you play music, it becomes new. This is one way I've been thinking about memory and the present, past, and future times all fitting together. I call it the exquisite moment. It's an exquisite moment because the audience and the situation of performing allows us, requires us, to think of that moment. Very often we go through life without thinking about the moment. We talk about mindfulness, but we're not very mindful, most of us. Those are the words of composer Philip Glass. The immense power of music can hold us in rapture with the revelation of silence or the paradox of the complexity of a single melodic line that transports us to another realm of timelessness. If we are truly aware, the experience of the exquisite moment that Philip Glass spoke about is profoundly transformative. My guest today can help us capture that ecstasy. Pianist and composer Nicholas Namaratza has thrilled audiences with pianistic brilliance. He can hypnotize us with sublime artistic interpretation and skill, but he has also combined the study of science, mindfulness, meditative arts, and psychology as a companion to music. During the pandemic, he entered the study of neuropsychology at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College, London. He delved into the effects of mental practice and mindfulness on musical performance. And now he has joined with the celebrated music streaming service, Idagio, to share mindfulness and music with the masses. As laureate winner of one of the most prestigious piano competitions in the world, the 2018 Honens Competition, Nicholas has proven his excellence as an artist with stunning sold-out concerts, such as his performances of Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto with the London Philharmonic and Wigmore Hall Recital, recordings on Hyperion and Steinway labels, and literally knockout reviews. He has recently been honored with the Critics Circle Young Pianist Award. I first spoke with him a few years ago, pre-COVID, after his Honin's win. We spoke about a great many things, from the beginnings of his musical career to the existence of black holes and gravitational waves in the universe. Not your average conversation with a pianist. Well, it is my pleasure now to welcome him back to center stage and experience the brilliance of his music making, but also his insights into the world of the science of the mind. Nicholas, welcome to center stage. Thank you for being on my show. Thank you so much for having me and for this uh, wonderful introduction. (laughs) I'm really very flattered, I must say. Thank you. It's all true, Nicholas. It's all well, I don't know about that, but it's certainly very kind of you to say all these nice words. <laughs> and you are joining us now from Boston, Massachusetts, I believe? Yes, yes, which is now my primary home base, though I do have a rather peripatetic lifestyle, so I spend a lot of time in Europe, 
and Berlin is my headquarters for my performances and tours there. So it's it's back and forth, and that's exactly the kind of life I like to have. Yeah, you treasure that. I, I adore it. So I have to ask you right off the bat, what did you think of the Philip Glass um, uh, moment that I, I just read? It was a really interesting quote, and uh, funnily enough, not one I was familiar with. Mm. I was aware of Philip Glass's interest in mindfulness and uh, mm -hmm. Buddhism as well, actually. Yes. And he's had some connections with, I think, the uh, Tibetan Buddhist communities. So uh, I was aware of his uh, interest in the contemplative sciences, uh, so to speak, but I hadn't come across this quote before. And it very well encapsulates the complexity and very interesting nature of how music can bring us to a greater awareness and connection to the present moment. And there are many interesting perspectives on this because the perspective of the listener can be quite different to the perspective of the performer. Mm -hmm. I feel like performers have to do extraordinary feats of multitasking, but not simply in terms of coordinating actions in the present, but holding, as Philip Glass said, the past and future as well in the present moment. One has to be monitoring what one just played and then accordingly make adjustments to what one is hearing currently in order to affect a change in what one is about to hear in the future. So it is a remarkably involved process. And as musicians, we always think about how we can occupy that space as effectively as we can. And there's a lot of discussion in sports psychology, of course, about the zone and getting into the zone and how one can occupy this very special kind of headspace. And there has been in the literature some disagreement as to to what extent is mindfulness involved in the zone or is it perhaps counterproductive in a sense? Uh, is being... Uh, hyper-aware, so to say, or meta-aware, being aware of one's own awareness, so to say, in a sense, would that break the spell of the zone? And it doesn't. And one would think that perhaps in order to really perform very well, one has to get lost in, mm -hmm. in the moment. And we often talk about getting lost in the moment as being, you know, the, the hallmark of really enjoying uh, something. But it also can have the effect of distancing us from the nature of the experience itself. And what I found is that as I become more mindful and as I practice this more and train myself in becoming more mindful, somehow one can hold the present moment much more effectively. And it changes the quality of the performance very much. Somehow one feels less rushed in a sense that you aren't always looking ahead to what is coming next. Yes. It's this sense that one can kind of walk through life, not leaning forward, but occupying the moment in which one is in. And that really transfers to the musical experience as well. And it has a really remarkable effect on how one plays. Somehow, everything that one wants to engage with musically becomes much more vivid when one isn't simply lost in thinking about what has to happen next or what might have just happened. So this juggling act that I described of juggling the past, present, and future becomes so much more 
in a sense, presented in high definition when one becomes mindful. And I realized the extent to which I wasn't connecting with that before I really started training in mindfulness. Somehow there was a whole dimension of experience that wasn't available to me before I really trained myself not to be lost in thought and to actually really connect with the nature of experience. And I think much of the same thing can be said for the listening experience. We often don't connect with the extent to which listening, for example, is a very physical experience, that it's a whole body experience, that one experiences music not only in one's ears, but uh, we can observe how what we listen to uh, stimulate certain images in our minds or certain bodily sensations. Music can have a very particular physiological pattern, and we often don't connect with that. And I feel that mindfulness can really bring a new dimension to the listening experience. And then music itself becomes a kind of bell for mindfulness. It is a way to bring us back into the present moment and to really ground us in the very experience that we are having. Because I think that sometimes uh, a misconception when it comes to mindfulness is the sense that we don't think about the present or the uh, the future, excuse me, or the past and just are in a kind of naive state of uh, being in the present. And that's simply not the case. It's rather that when we contemplate the future, we know we're doing it and we aren't lost in the process. And to me, it's a similar thing with the musical experience. You just connect more directly with the experience you're having. I sometimes say that mindfulness, to put it very crudely, is the way to get your money's worth out of life, you know, so that you get the full experience that it is that you're having, you know, that you aren't getting 40% of it or 60% of it. Whatever might be happening, you are there fully Mm -hmm. and everything becomes much more meaningful. So So Philip Glass is absolutely right. You know, we aren't mindful, that mindful much of the time. And when we do become more mindful, then it just opens up a whole new dimension to life. So what you're saying is really much more than the basic uh, Buddhism idea of just being present in the moment. It's actually this totality of the all. Am am I right? Absolutely. And you will find such perspectives in the earliest texts. Of course, mindfulness grew out of the Buddhist tradition and now is somewhat... um, I wouldn't say dislocated from it, but does exist independently of it. Uh, and as, as, as a science of the mind, it can work perfectly well without any particular cultural context, though it is definitely worth understanding the context in which it was uh, created. Um, it is, in a sense, so much more than what we think it may be. Okay. Mindfulness today is often invoked as a kind of form of stress relief or performance enhancement, which it is, of course, but those are, in a sense, positive byproducts of a practice that, at its core, is a process of us understanding our minds Mm -hmm. and observing our minds and becoming much better acquainted with why we think the way we do, why we experience life the way we do. And making this a conscious thing and not letting these things go unnoticed and unobserved. And this is something that is present in the texts of these old sages, so to say. And it is really fascinating to read them because they are remarkably 
precise in their description of mental processes that we today can observe and understand through neuroscientific research. And it's really extraordinary to see this convergence. Mm -hmm. And again, these experiments were done very scientifically. I'm talking about the meditative experiments here. People sitting down and simply very rigorously observing their own mental processes and making deductions from them without any kind of need to invoke uh, any supernatural features. It, it was simply a science of the mind. And as you said, one then begins to apply that to the totality of experience, not just to being here and now, but simply in terms of how do we kind of experience everything that happens in our life? How do we assimilate past experiences? How do we project ourselves into the future? How does this all happen? And when we do all of those things with mindfulness, it really changes the nature of those activities. This is extraordinary, Nicholas. I mean, you and I have spoken about science before, but this is adding a whole new realm. I, I, I want to ask you one really important question, because I know years ago, I, I read the, the books of, of Timothy Galway, who wrote um, Inner Tennis, it, it became Inner Golf, and then the Inner inner Music. And he talks about getting to that point you addressed earlier, uh, the, about the technique being so perfect and so ingrained and so natural in the body 
that you literally, like for instance, play tennis out of your mind. You, you're actually little, literally leaving the mind and letting the body flow through and finding that, that groove, you know, that, I, I guess, the height of mindfulness in, in his words. So with a musician and with yourself especially, do you feel that you have to come with the perfect technique first through this to, to make this the complete package? I don't actually and to me one of the liabilities of the focus on mindlessness let's put it mm -hmm. that way mm -hmm. in artistic or athletic performance is the concomitant fear that as soon as a thought pops into our minds or we get slightly distracted that this whole very delicate edifice will come crumbling down and you know now we, we cannot perform at that high level anymore one thing that mindfulness really helps you do is being able to observe thoughts without getting stuck in them and not panicking when they do come right. so one can actually have a much more flexible and actually solid presence in this zone it becomes much less fragile when one trains in mindfulness as well interesting, interesting. I, I would call that the what is state you know not what should yeah. be but the what is and when Absolutely. you're directly in that it dispels fear and it as you say you become very grounded absolutely because before we become mindful or simply observe our thoughts, we tend to attach too much importance to them. We don't realize that these are these small electrical blips in our mind that come and go and are really quite random. And anytime you sit down and actually begin observing your thoughts, you, you realize how utterly random and nonsensical most of them are and how there's really no need for us to identify with them. We evolved to be paranoid um, and, you know, afraid of everything mm -hmm. in order to survive in, in the savanna when we were chased by tigers. And this overly uh, fearful mindset doesn't necessarily serve us well today when we have the same rush of adrenaline when we're late for the train, which is com a completely unnecessary physiological reaction Absolutely. to a situation which is not life-threatening. So... I think everyone should study a little bit of evolutionary biology simply because it makes us realize to what extent our reactions were designed for a very different environment yes. because it's, it helps us take them less seriously. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with thoughts. So the reason why I say this is that when we know this, when we're playing, for example, and we have a, a silly thought like, oh, you are really going to screw up the next passage or something like that, we take it less seriously. We realize that... This is just how our minds are designed. It doesn't mean that we should identify with these thoughts. Those thoughts are not you. Those are just these electrical signals that, you know, you have the flexibility and power and autonomy to either choose to identify with or not. Mm -hmm. So then the zone becomes much less fragile. You see these thoughts coming and you just let them go. You realize, you recognize them for what they are. So that's, that's, I think, a really important process. And that allows one to be less prepared and not be so perfectly prepared, but still play at a high level. And this is a major change that happened for me, for example. I was able to enter into a state with not that much preparation, mm -hmm. 
that I otherwise would have required a much higher level of preparation to have achieved, to have had that level of comfort and confidence. So now, now I feel less dependent on how many hours I've practiced in order right. to feel comfortable on stage. Now I can get into that headspace, even if it's a very new piece and I theoretically should be really freaking out about this, for example, but I know that, you know, I can get into that space without that kind of separate external factor affecting it. And then I'll play at a much better level than I otherwise could have with that level of preparation. So that's something that really is a game changer. You bet. And, 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 you know, it's, I, I'm, I feel much more free somehow. I'm not yeah. dependent on having had a good day, having had a good meal, having been well rested, having been really well prepared in order to get into a headspace that I, that I otherwise thought was dependent on those factors. Now it's just, it's just down to me and my mind. Mm -hmm. And, and that really changes how I can perform. And so you don't let anything or you try not to let anything in, in your mind limit you at this point. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, of course, sometimes some things may come up, which will take more work to push to the side, so to say, or to resolve. Mm -hmm. But this is a, it's a very new perspective for me, at least on performance optimization and making things feel less random. You know, for many performers, it's, it, it's, it can become almost a matter of superstition. You know, how do you get into this special zone and how do you stay there? And, you know, should you have steak or pasta before, you know, well, you know, and it becomes very mysterious, you know, how do you make this happen and how do you stay there? And some days you have good days and some days you have bad days. But I think the good thing about mindfulness and training in this and, you know, f through a performance psychology perspective is, you don't become dependent on having a good day. You might be having a very bad day exactly. or a good day, but you can be consistent in how you are prepared mentally. So that really changes things. How did you first come to this, Nicholas? I mean, I'm going to presume that you needed to come to some sense of mindfulness and relaxation and meditative spirit through all of the, the competitive uh, element in your music making, especially going into the competitions you were doing, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So that's exactly how it happened. It was during my time at Juilliard, that I decided to withdraw from performing actively or competing at all, actually. I decided that I needed some time to find myself as an artist, to find my artistic voice and profile, to find what music I wanted to play and how I wanted to play it. I wanted to devote more time to composing, to pursuing my doctorate, and just, you know, expanding my horizons to make sure that my art was really informed by my experience in life and to make sure that I were ready for a concert career if and when I'd be fortunate enough to be launched into one. I thought that I wanted to make sure I had enough repertoire and I had really kind of come to a sense of myself before being flung into the fray, so to say, and under the limelight, and then having to find myself in the public eye, I felt that that's not something that I would want to do. And it was a very risky thing to do. Yes. And it's extraordinary so, that yeah. you were able to afford that, literally. Yes. Uh, well, I was quite fortunate because I, around that time, was applying and then was uh, accepted into the doctoral program at the City University of New York, which also entailed my teaching at Queens College. Mm 
I taught music history and theory and appreciation and some chamber music and piano as well. So um, I had a salary and could afford to just, you know, uh, live and work in New York and have the time to continue developing as a pianist and not worry about, you know, pushing myself onto the scene as fast as possible just to get by. So I was really lucky to have that uh, scholarship fellowship um, at, at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And that really bought me a lot of time and space to really find myself, so to say. And it was a, an enormous luxury from which I am still very, very grateful. I am sure. What a profound notion that you did it so young and you know it's interesting mm -hmm. did you did you just know when to re-enter did you know did you sit with yourself and decide this is the t this is the moment pretty much so a couple of years down the line i thought that i think i'm ready now and uh, the first competition i picked was honans uh, and I picked it for several reasons. One was that uh, at the time, and I think still today, it, it offered the largest competition prize for any pianist, and I think generally in classical music, uh, which not only included the, 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 the prize, but also a three-year artist development program, which has now become actually four years because the competition was delayed to this year because of the pandemic. So I, I, I got to be Mr. Honans for an extra year, which is quite, <laughs> quite nice. Yes, it was, it was, it was very nice. But, but yes, so, um, a comprehensive artist development package that includes um, management and PR and recordings and debut recitals all around the world. And the, it's really an ideal way to start an international career. I would say so. so. Yeah, yeah it, it was really fantastic. But this was very attractive to me. And I really believed in the ethos of the complete artist that Honans um, really uh, embraced and it was very much part of their mission statement actually uh, this idea that an, they were looking for an artist that really embraced the whole of the artistic and human experience so to say and drew inspiration from many different fields and was also an adept uh, speaker and communicator and could really bring the outside world into the music and music into the outside world and that sense of community you know, communication and engagement with the wider community was something that very much spoke to me. So I went for Honus and I was very lucky to have won it. So I didn't have to do any more competitions after that, thankfully, because because of this win. And I've been very much enjoying the roller coaster of an international career that has followed it. Nicholas Namaratza is a trendsetter within the world of musicians. His mind is complex, but he presents us with a calm and exciting perspective of experiencing music, whether you are a performer or a listener. I hope you will listen to part two of this interview next Tuesday at 9 a.m. on Center Stage at WGCH Talk Radio. Please go to centerstagewithpamelacoon.com to listen to a gallery of my shows, and you can find Nicholas at nicholasnamaratza.com. In the meantime, stay safe out there. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage. Mm -hmm.